As you're opening there, I just want to take a moment to uh, thank you as a body for the incredible outpouring towards my family, uh, for the cards, for the emails, for the texts, for the personal phone calls, for the hugs that I've received since I've been back, for the visits. You have shown me and my family an incredible outpouring of love during this time uh, where um, I lost my mother. Um, As I've been saying many times, two things uh, throughout this whole, and I said it to Rebecca this morning, um, my mother's death is sad, but it's not tragic. Because we do not grieve as the world does who has no hope, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. She's with the Lord. And we'll see her again. It's sad, but it's not tragic. Praise God. It's because of Jesus. Please pray with me. Father God, I just ask you to help me preach this text well. Lord, this is powerless unless your word is read and unless you, Holy Spirit, take that word and apply it to our hearts and minds. And I pray to you, Spirit, that you'll do that in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if you grew up in the 70s or 80s, you, chances are, you sang along to, you played air guitar to, or you went to a prom and slow danced to the song Stairway to Heaven. It was ubiquitous at that time. Probably still is, you know, the last song at a prom, I don't know. Over the years, the lead singer of Led Zeppelin, Robert Plant, has been asked about the meaning of the song, to which he replies, depending on the day, I'll give you another meaning. It's been interpreted as a song about possessions and greed, about the inevitability of death, And some even say it was penned intentionally to be confusing. But what we can say is the very first lyrics of the song put forth a truth that all born on earth it applies to. The song starts like this. There's a lady who's sure all that glitters is gold and she's buying a stairway to heaven. We're wired to believe that. That's how our flesh is hardwired. We earn heaven. We buy our way to heaven. Our flesh yearns to be able to take credit for our salvation. Our very words, even how we speak about it, I led somebody to Christ. It it, it drips with it. And in our text today, through two encounters, Jesus begins to teach in no uncertain terms that we have to have the what we have to have the humility to admit. And what we have to have the humility to admit is that God is sovereign totally over salvation. Let's look at our text today and begin to look at that truth. 
starting in verse 13. God's word says, Then the children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then the young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God All things are possible. When Peter said in reply, We see, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left house, or brother, or sister, or father, or mother, or child, or lands, for my namesake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Jesus, just for context, Jesus is on his way down south. He's going south from the north of of Israel towards Jerusalem for the final time. If you flip over, or maybe it's on on the right side of your page, you see in chapter 21, he is entering Jerusalem for the final time, his triumphal entry. He has traveled into a region now just east of the Jordan River, down near the Dead Sea. And there, if you remember, just looking back at the last pericope there, he encountered a few Pharisees who wanted to trap him and started talking to him about about the decree of divorce that Moses wrote about. So he's still in that region. And while there, he has these two encounters that we just read about. One with children and one with a rich young ruler. And it's interesting that the Holy Spirit put these two together. He put them together here in Matthew, and in the same order in Mark, and in the same order in Luke. These two stories. So that we cannot miss the principle that he wants us to get. 
that the Holy Spirit wants us to get from this, from these two stories. And that is really what we read as in our public reading of Scripture. That God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we see this from a very high level. Children are allowed to come to him, right? Whereas the ruler walks away. Some coming, some going. Children are accepted. The ruler is, if you will, rejected. The humble are offered grace. And the proud are opposed by God. The proud are opposed by God. That's what we're meant to see in the rich young ruler here in verses 16 through 22. Here a young but wealthy man approaches Jesus and asks a few simple questions. I think they're, I think they're honest questions. I think that, that he doesn't come to Jesus with any self-righteous attitude. At least that's how I read it. I could be reading it wrong. But nonetheless, what he is coming with is dripping with pride. That's what makes pride so insidious in our lives, doesn't it? It's like jello, trying to, trying to pin jello down. It just doesn't stay. Trying to, trying to pin, pin our pride down is so difficult. This young man comes asking questions to Jesus, not angry, confrontive questions. Yet there's pride right below the surface. It's like, it's like that skim of ice when it just starts to freeze. It's just below the surface. It's subtle, like it is in us. It disguises itself, just like it does in each one of us, because that's the nature of pride. One of my heroes is the Puritan Richard Baxter. He was a pastor who uh, pastored a small church in, the, in England in Kidderminster. And he had a long and profitable ministry there. And he wrote a book called The Reformed Pastor. And in that, he writes this. Oh, what a constant companion. What a tyrannical commander. What a sly and subtle, insinuating enemy is this sin of pride. That's what pride is. It's sly. It's subtle. It's insinuating. It's everywhere in us. And I'd like us to take a few minutes to just examine it in this, this young ruler and maybe we'll see a little of its, of its disguise in us as well. I think first of all we see pride disguising itself as humility here in this young man. This young man, this wealthy young man, approaches Jesus and asks a question that, that we all ask. Even, even unbelievers ask this question. What must I do to have eternal life? How, where's the stairway to heaven? How do I buy this stairway to heaven? And I assume it's a good, truthful, straightforward question. But did you hear the pride just below the surface? What must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I buy? How can I earn heaven? 
Earlier in Matthew's Gospel on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells the people that on the last day, if you remember this in, in Matthew 7, on the last day, there will be people pleading their case for salvation before him. Do you remember this? And they say, we prophesied in your name, we drove out demons in your name, we performed miracles in your name. And you remember what he says, go away from me, I never knew you. And, and that group of people seems surprised because they were relying on their works and they didn't even know it. You can be relying on your works for salvation and not even know it. That's how, that's how insidious, that's how sly, that's how subtle sin is. That's how subtle pride is. It disguises itself. There are scads of people relying on their works for salvation and they never know it because pride disguises itself like that. It wraps itself up in innocent works and attitudes. Pride always asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think the truth that Jesus wants us to understand here is we can do nothing. We can do nothing. If left up to us, we would never understand the gospel. We would never accept the gospel. We would never be saved if it was left up to us. There are no amount of work, no amount of morality, no amount of good deeds, no amount of success translates into salvation. That's what he's saying in verse 26. Salvation is impossible with man. We cannot change our hearts from, from stone to flesh. We can't do that. We think we can. We assume what is wrong, that it goes outside in. That's what we assume. If I do good enough, it will work its way. It'll change my heart. And what scripture says, what, what the gospel tells us, no, it's inside out. Your heart is changed by the gospel to flesh and thus you become a kind person. You become a generous person. You become a lover of the least of these We cannot change our spots, as it says rhetorically in Jeremiah 13. But God can. With him, all things are possible because, because that's what Christ came to do. That's why he came. So that our hearts would be changed. Christ did it all. The work is completed. He accomplished everything for us. The work of salvation is totally complete. You see, Jesus answers the rich man here correctly. Do you, did you catch that when he says, what must I do? What does Jesus do? Does he say, oh, well, just believe on me? No. What did he say? Did you do the commands? Because there is a works righteousness that can be attained. And it was attained by Christ. We can't attain it. 
He lived the perfect life we can't. He did all the law. And that's what he was born to do. He lived the perfect life, as 1 Peter 2.22 says. No sin, he, he was uh, found sinless and neither was deceit found in his mouth. God requires, secondly, payment for sin and rebellion against him. And that's what Romans 6.23 tells us. The wages, how you pay, the payment for your sin is actual spiritual death. And Jesus paid that on the cross. That's why he not only lived the perfect life, but he actually went to the cross willingly to absorb your and my payment for our sins. Because that's the spiritual law of gravity. Your sins need to be paid for. He died the death we all deserve and he rose on the third day, proving everything he did and said was right. Conquering Sin, which is the consequence of death, and to offer us eternal life. That's what Jesus did. It's possible because of what Jesus did. It's possible to have eternal life because of what I just explained to you. If you remember the feeding of the 5,000 in John, if you remember that story, some people kind of tracked him around the, the lake and found him on the other side when he got there because they were confused and they asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? They're asking the same question that this young man is asking. And you remember his answer. The work of God is this, to believe in the one whom God has sent. To have faith in Christ. You want to know what you can do? Have faith in Christ. Believe the gospel. Trust what Christ has done for you. Totally. No more work required. (laughs) But here's the thing. Ephesians 2 tells us that even that faith is a gift. Can't even take credit for that. And that, that hurts our pride, doesn't it? Because it's just below the surface. There's another disguise prides wear, and that is it disguises itself as morality. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus has just told him eternal life is attained by keeping these commands. By that he means the Ten Commandments, and then he lists some of them off there. And look at what the ruler responds in verse 20. He says, All these I have kept. What more must I do? What do I still lack? I've kept all these. Now, again, I'm giving the, this young man the benefit of the doubt. He's not, I don't think, I don't read this, maybe you read it differently, I don't read this as, as a, a man full of external hubris. He, I think he thinks he's kept the law pretty well. Most of us, if we're honest are just like this young man. And, and the proof of that is when we go into a time of confession, how long until your mind goes blank? 30 seconds? A minute? 
three minutes, and then you go, I'm kind of done with my sin. Because we all think we're pretty good. Basically. We think we kind of keep the law, just like this young man. You see the pride that is disguised right below the surface there? Perhaps he never murdered anyone. But as Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, the law is all about the heart, isn't it? It's not just the external actions. Maybe he never committed physical adultery, but it's all about the internal, the mind, he said, right? Maybe, did he really never lie? Really? Did he completely honor his father and mother? Did he love his neighbor as himself? Do any of us really? But that's what pride does. It disguises itself in our lives by shortening the ruler by which we measure. A little boy came to his mother and told her he was six feet tall. When she tried to correct him, he was adamant because he says he had just measured himself. His mother then went and and checked his calculations and they were right by the ruler he was using. But the ruler was only six inches long. That's what pride does to us. It hands us the wrong ruler. Measure yourself this way. The Bible can't mean that. Here, measure yourself this way. It convinces us to lower the bar of God's commands. Why? So that we can jump over it. So that we can measure up. We're tricked into thinking that we're better than we actually honor, than we actually are. You see, you and I, we, we honor our parents in adulthood as far as they were good to us. That's the wrong ruler. We think we're right in shortcutting our taxes because we don't agree with all the government is doing. We don't agree where they're putting the money. That's the wrong ruler. We think we can lie about the little things. We call them little white lies. I heard it just this week. That's the wrong ruler. We constantly, pride constantly hands us the wrong ruler. It says, measure yourself this way. And thus we are duped like the rich young ruler here into saying after a little bit of time, I'm keeping the law pretty well. Lastly, pride disguises itself as success. After the ruler walks away from Jesus, look at what he says in verse 23. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for the camel to go through an eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Brothers and sisters, it's hard to have money and live a faithful life. Let me say that again. It's hard to be wealthy, to have money, and live a faithful life. It just is. That's what Jesus is saying here. Because the temptation to place your security from Christ to mammon, 
is overwhelming. It's so hard. It's like, it's like a recovering alcoholic with four days sobriety trying to live in a liquor store. Not impossible, but rife with temptation and potential failure. That's what Jesus is saying about wealth in our fallen condition. It's hard to be faithful and to be a believer. But I think the disciples' reaction to Jesus' statement in 25 is really curious. They said, who then can be saved? Isn't that interesting that they say that? You know, in our culture, and actually throughout culture and movies and literature, we tend to relate money with wickedness, wealth with wickedness. The rich guys are, are the bad guys. Not in Jesus' day. To the people of that day, wealth meant God is with you. Wealth meant you had done something right in God's eyes. Wealth meant you were in. So they ask, if not the godly wealthy, then who? And look again at verse 26, at at Jesus' answer. With man, this is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. Brothers and sisters, this is the fulcrum of the text right here. This, if you're an underliner, this is the underlining part of this text. What Jesus is saying here is salvation is impossible without God doing it all. That is the antidote for our sneaky pride, is believing what Jesus says here. Keep reminding ourselves that salvation is a gift that is given wholly to us. It's not something that we partially bought. It's keeping reminding ourselves that God did it all. The work is completed in his resurrection. We call it around here. It's, it's keep preaching the gospel to yourselves. Otherwise, pride will keep us at a distance from Christ. And that's the sad thing about this text, isn't it? The man actually walked away. But the shocking thing, the thing that that gives us the lump in our throat in this text, at least it gives me the lump in my throat in this text, is that Christ didn't go after him. He lets him walk away. That's kind of terrifying. The great preacher Donald Gray Barhouse said, Christ sends none away empty but those who are full of themselves. Because God opposes the proud. But praise be to Jesus, he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Richard Baxter continues and writes this, the very design of the gospel is to abase us. The work of grace is begun and carried on In humility. Humility is not merely an ornament of a Christian, but an essential part of the new creature. To be a Christian and not to be humble is a contradiction in terms, he says. This is what Jesus is showing us in verses 13, 14, and 15 when he asks the children to come to him. 
This was a common practice for rabbis to bless children there in the area. But the disciples were trying to keep him, them away. We don't know why. It could be because they think Jesus needs his energy or, or not to waste his time. We don't, we're not given a reason. But they're keeping him away. And Jesus rebukes them and allows them access. And herein is the upside-downness of the kingdom of God. Jesus rejects the, who the disciples thinks he should accept, the rich man, and accepts the one the disciples thinks they should reject, the children. And he says, let them come to me, for such belongs the kingdom of God. In Luke's telling of this, he says this, I tell you the truth, anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You have to receive the gospel. You have to receive Christ like a little child. You have to be humble. It is, it is to hear the impossibility of salvation by merit and accept it. It is to accept that you contribute nothing to your salvation. It is to accept that you are weak and needy. What does that look like? Well, I think it first looks like a radical worldly detachment. A radical humility looks like a radical worldly detachment. Infants don't own anything. They don't have worldly attachments. They don't worry about things. They don't grip the world tightly. They don't obsess over the things of the world. That's what Jesus is alluding to when he was responding to Peter's question here about reward. Because Peter says, what about us? We've left everything. What's our reward? If you look at that section... In verse 28, Jesus says, I I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 29, and everyone who has left house or brother or sister or father or mother or child or lands for my, my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. The life of a believer is shaped by the things of this world. It is defined by the slow and gradual sacrifice of them in their hearts. A tourist was traveling through the area where famed Rabbi Hafez Chaim was living. Being a great admirer of the rabbi, he inquired whether he could visit the rabbi at his home. He soon got a reply and he was welcomed to the rabbi's home. The young tourist arrived at the rabbi's simple one-room house. Upon entering it, to his amazement, he saw only a table, a lamp, a cot, and a few books. That's it. Surprised, the tourist asked, Rabbi, where's the rest of your furniture? Rabbi Chaim replied, where's yours? Puzzled by the rabbi's response, the tourist replied, my furniture, I'm only a visitor here. To which the rabbi said, so am I. Part of a childlike humility is having a radical detachment from this world. Secondly, childlike humility also looks like utter dependence. An infant has no illusion they can provide for themselves. 
They have no pride that they can make it on their own. They do not fool themselves into the frame of mind of self-sufficiency. They look at their parents for everything. An infant is utterly dependent on their mother and father for everything. A young woman once brought her fiancé home to meet her parents, and after dinner, her mother told her father to find out a little bit about this young man. The father invited him into his study and asked him, So what are your plans? The young man replied, I'm a Bible scholar. Bible scholar, that's great. How do you plan to provide for my daughter? To which the young man says, I'll study and God will provide for us. And how will you buy her an engagement ring, he asks. I will concentrate on my studies and God will provide for us. And children, the father said, how are you going to support your children? God will provide. Later, when the mother asked how the conversation went, the father replied, he has no job and no plans, but the good news is he thinks I'm God. (laughs) Obviously, a humorous exaggeration, but actually, the young man's answers were very biblical. Jesus taught this type of radical dependence on him again and again and again. Our memory verse last year, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father provides for them. Are you not much more valuable than these? And look at the lilies of the field. They grow, they labor and spin They do not labor and spin, yet I tell you that that Solomon in all of his splendor was not dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field that is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, how much more will he care for you? And then he concludes it, O you of little faith. Do you want to know what faith is in this context? It's choosing to believe what God says despite how you feel or your experience. Faith is choosing to believe what God says, despite how you feel or your experience. Utter dependence does not feel right to us, but it is the childlike humility that God calls us to. And lastly, childlike humility looks like absolute helplessness. Absolute Helplessness. When each of my children were born, that's when I began to realize how helpless infants really are. They're totally helpless. They depend on this on us for everything. Food, clothing, nourishment. They're helpless to defend themselves against anything. And that, Jesus says, is the place we have to come to in order to inherit eternal life. Total and utter helplessness. We have to understand that we are helpless to save ourselves. Utterly helpless to save ourselves. To admit you're helpless takes real humility. To loosen your grip on the world, what it has to offer, takes incredible humility. To accept that you are utterly dependent on God for salvation means that you have to swallow your pride over and over again. But such belongs to the kingdom of God. Tim Keller wrote, Christmas is about receiving gifts. 
But consider how challenging it is to receive certain kinds of gifts. Some gifts, by their very nature, make you swallow your pride. Imagine opening a present on Christmas morning from a friend, and it's a diet book. Then you take off another ribbon and wrapper, and you find it is another book from another friend on overcoming selfishness. If you say to them, thank you so very much, you are, in a sense, admitting, for indeed I am overweight and obnoxious. In other words, some gifts are hard to receive because they, to do it, you have to admit you have flaws and weaknesses and you need help. That's how the gospel comes wrapped. When you unwrap the gospel, it says you're utterly helpless. You're weak. You need to be utterly dependent on me. You need to loosen your grip on the world. That's how it comes wrapped. And that gift requires you to swallow your pride. Admitting you're absolutely helpless to save yourself and looking to the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Always remembering that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. And Spirit, again, I implore you to change us through it. Help us to be more dependent. Consider ourselves more helpless. And look beyond this world to the hundredfold inheritance that awaits us and loosen our grip on this one. In Jesus' name, amen.